Our guest today on Healthy Options is Florence Williams, who is with us by phone to talk about breasts. Yes, indeed. She is the author of the book Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, and she is the creator of the new podcast Breasts Unbound. Florence Williams is a journalist who focuses on health, science, and the environment, and she is a best-selling author, podcaster, and public speaker. She is a contributing editor to Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, Slate, Mother Jones, and many other publications. The book we plan to discuss today, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Science and Technology and the 2013 Audie in General Nonfiction. It also earned recognition by the New York Times for being named a notable book of 2012. Her Apple podcast, called Breasts Unbound, won a Gracie Award for original audio programming. She's received many other awards, including six magazine awards from the American Society of Journalists and Authors and the John Hersey Prize for when she attended Yale. Florence Williams spoke with us this past fall on Healthy Options about her recent book, The Nature Fix, How Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. And we are so honored to have her back today to talk about breasts, a natural and unnatural history. Welcome back to WERU and Healthy Options, Florence Williams. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. That's great. Um, I, I was reading the book, and I, I was totally struck by how, when I was telling people I was reading the book as well, that the first thing that people do is they start laughing, they start giggling, and you started your book, <laughs> right, um, with this idea of the, about the sexuality of breasts or women and men in breasts or women in, as sexual, uh, somehow this cultural aspect of breasts. And then what I was very struck by and, and happy to talk about e- even more is why we have breasts and the function and what work, how they work and what's going on inside our breasts and what that means for our species as mammals and, and, and the environment and, and that sort of thing. How do, how does that, how do, how do you feel about that? Or <laughs> Yes, well, I, I really set out to write, a, you know, kind of science-based book about how breasts work uh, and, and the fact that they're such incredible evolutionary miracles. Um, but I soon ran into you know, these intense cultural sort of um, attitudes, you know, and the cultural baggage we have around breasts. And, and the, those attitudes really say that, you know, breasts are super sexy. We hypersexualize them, you know, in our society. Um, and that they're for men. You know, that's really kind of like the dominant worldview is that breasts exist for men. And, in fact, they even exist for men in deep evolutionary time, that the reason they evolved is to convey information and to be a sexual signal to men. So that's one attitude, but it's kind of the dominant evolutionary theory behind breasts, that they're sexually selected. And I, I wanted to challenge that a little bit. I wanted to go kind of underneath that assumption, um, find out if, you know, if it really was based in science. Uh, and I learned that actually it's not. You know, we really have no idea when breasts evolved in, you know, our early ancestors. There's, there's no, you know, fossil evidence for breasts. When you dig up, um, you know, a skeleton, you, you don't know whether whether that skeleton had breasts or not. So when did they evolve? Why did they evolve? Um, and, and it turns out that the people who posited 
you know, these ideas about breasts really being sexual signals are men who have their own boob obsessions. <laughs> and I went and I found them and I interviewed them, like this guy at Oxford, who it turns out is just obsessed with breasts. He's a breast guy. <laughs> I, you, you, you did mention his paintings and such, and yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and all these, you know, all these feminist anthropologists are really challenging those notions now in some really interesting, profound ways that, that have a lot of um, they have a lot of implications for how we view breasts today and what we think they're for. So they, these ideas really matter about the evolution and origin. So, yeah, I want, I want to talk about that a little bit more. When, what, what, what do we know that breasts are made of? We, what, what? Well, yes. Yeah, well, so um, breasts are largely made up of fat. <laughs> right. And um, that's, that's why we have them all the time, probably. You know, other primates only have swellings on their chest while they're lactating, while they're nursing young. And then they sort of become flat-chested again. Whereas, you know, humans are very unusual and kind of unique in the animal kingdom in that we have these breasts all the time from the time of puberty onward. And so it, it turns out that they're very handy. They're a very handy place to store fat. And women need fat. And we needed it in our deep evolutionary past in order to gestate a pregnancy, um, in order to breastfeed the human infant. Human infant requires way more fat. Uh, and fatty acids than our other primate um, cousins. Uh, and, and then we need a certain amount of fat to even reach puberty. And so, so the, the human has just a much higher, the human female has a much higher fat requirement. And so, so breasts are actually a really great place to store them, and partly because they're also filled with estrogen receptors. And where there's estrogen, there's fat. So that really plays into sort of, I think, you know, the, the deep reason why they evolved and why we have them. And, and really, you know, their appeal to men and men's interest in them was was very likely secondary. Yeah, right, right. So this idea of uh, of the fat and their glands and where we have proteins, you know, what all of those ducts and such that are all about really suckling young, actually making That's the right. species continue and providing you can imagine i would i would think uh, maybe we all can that before that how do you how does a species survive if you only are dealing with what you can what's outside uh, this would be a great evolutionary advantage to be able to have uh, your young before they can take care of themselves have a way to to survive that's true i mean before the age of mammals which was ushered in about 150 million years ago. Um, there was a large mass extinction on the planet then. Um, before then, you know, it was really dinosaurs and birds and um, reptiles and aquatic species that sort of dominated the planet. And um, those didn't lactate. You know, they had to, the young, as soon as the young were born, they had to kind of consume the food that was present in the environment. Uh, and then after that mass extinction, mammals really took off and started to take over the world. Uh, and, and part of that is because they did have this tremendous flexibility of being able to live in different kinds of environments where there wasn't necessarily appropriate food for the young. Um, for example, you know, some mammals in the deep ocean, um, that there, there are seals that um, can, can nurse their young to such an extent in the first, like, four months of life that um, those, those young can um, increase their weight, like, 200 300%. You know, just in the first couple of months. So wow. it, it really gave a tremendous advantage to mammals everywhere, and lactation did. And it, was, it really fundamentally altered the planet.
So what do we know about breast and the environment? You're talking about estrogen, and estrogen is something that we think about in terms of sexuality, you know, reproduction and, our, and women having their menstruation. But we also, I, I think, talk about it in the environment, that there are things that we've heard of estrogen disruptors and things uh, along those lines. Um, what, what happens when you have estrogen receptors in the breast and, and we live in our world? Mm. Yeah, that's one of the concerns about having breasts, unfortunately. Uh, breasts make us, I think, vulnerable to environmental and industrial pollutants. So I mentioned our breasts are filled with estrogen receptors and also with fat. Uh, both of those things make breasts more vulnerable to, to pollution. So many pollutants out there are fat-loving, things like pesticides. Uh, and, and so our breasts kind of collect some of those compounds. And then uh, our breast receptors also are very sensitive to estrogens. And there are many plastics in our environment, as well as other compounds, that mimic estrogen. It turns out that the estrogen molecule is, I guess, simple enough that, that it's pretty easy for, for other compounds to kind of resemble it. And so those other compounds may land on the estrogen receptor, may set off a chain of events. So that's one of the theories why... For example, girls are going through puberty so much earlier now than ever before in human history. Um, something like, you know, 25% of girls start getting breast buds by the time they're eight years old now, nine years old. And this is a big change from just a generation, two generations ago. Girls are developing breasts on average over a year earlier than they used to. So one of the theories is that it's these uh, kind of estrogen mimics in our environment that are triggering these changes in our breast tissue. And, of course, there are other problems associated with that, too, because we know that when girls go through puberty earlier, they are at higher risk for a number of problems, um, including breast cancer later in life. And then when you have 8-year-olds with breasts, they are also at risk for sexual abuse. Um, They're at risk for uh, depression, anxiety, you know, because they have a body that they're not necessarily psychologically equipped to sort of handle. Let's just take that in for a moment. Um, this idea of um, of the environment playing such an important role in our in in how and how uh, just something that we have in in us is extraordinary. Because are people studying what's much like you're discovering? Are they studying what's happening inside of the breast? Because it seems almost like the, uh, the a canary in the uh, in the coal mine that what we know is going on in the breast are probably uh, mimicking or telling us what's happening in, in as our species changes. Yeah, that's right. And I was actually I was shocked and disappointed to learn how little breasts are being studied. And for example. When there are industrial chemicals introduced into the marketplace, I was shocked to learn that they aren't really tested for, for example, breast tumor growth effects. So um, in lab animals, um, you know, sometimes we do test lab animals for, for chemicals, or we, we expose them to certain chemicals and we see what happens to them. But we're not looking at their mammary glands. We're not looking at the mammary glands so much of rats and mice, even though in humans... This is one of the most common causes of death by cancer in humans. Breast cancer is incredibly common, one in eight women in their lifetime. So it's shocking to know that, that these chemicals aren't being tested for possible cancer, 
carcinogenic effects in breast tumors or in breast tissue. Um, but I'm happy to say that, that there are a few scientists out there who are really pushing this agenda, um, who are trying to standardize different ways we can test mammary tissue. Um, they're, they're figuring out sort of what you need to look for in terms of the development of the mammary gland itself. Because some of these chemicals we know um, change mammary gland development, and they appear to change it in ways that set it up for possible breast cancer later on. So I think, I think we're kind of at a crossroads where this is starting to change, um, but, but I think there's a tremendous urgency there because more and more women are getting breast cancer all the time. More young women are getting it. The highest rates of growth are in women under 40. Those are women who typically do not get mammograms. So we know that the growth in breast cancer is not just kind of an artifact of the fact that women are getting more mammograms. There's really something else going on. It very likely has to do with the environment, and we need to be paying attention to it. So really looking at the source versus the treatment, as it were, seems like a lot of research goes into how to treat breast cancer, but not a lot of research into how to avoid breast cancer. That's right. By the time you find a tumor on a mammogram, it's too late. You've already got the cancer. What we need to be focused on is prevention. So let's backtrack a little bit. And we've said that the uh, breast is has fat and uh, what else? It has collagen. We have ducks. We know that there are... Um, Lots of milk ducks. <laughs> milk, milk ducks, right. Lots of... Um, there are some ligaments in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. And... And that has been evolutionary uh, because we need so much fat as, um, as a species to survive, especially maybe, do you think less now than before? Or have we evolved in, in a different way in terms of our nutritional needs as infants? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, back in the day, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 years ago, um, fat was really a limiting resource. You know, we were much more likely to kind of starve to death and not get enough fat. Now, of course, we have too much. Right. Uh, and that also may be one of the reasons why breasts themselves are getting bigger. So that's another phenomenon. You know, I talked about how breasts are arriving earlier in young girls. But it turns out that breasts are also getting bigger. Um, and part of that just has to do with the fact that our American Western bodies are getting bigger everywhere. You know, we are much heavier. We have much more fat than we, than we need to have and than we used to have. Um, but again, it could be partly, partly because of these estrogens in our environment that our breasts are getting bigger. <laughs> so it's hmm. a complicated picture um, and, and one that I think, uh, you know, is, is definitely worth looking into just because of these rising rates, not only of breast cancer, but, but also because of the industrial compounds being found now in breast milk itself. Yes. So for, for my book, I actually tested my own breast milk when I was nursing my daughter um, I sent it to a lab in Germany, and it came back positive for ingredients like jet fuel um, and uh, certain pesticides and flame retardants, which are found in home furnishings and in computer products. So that was uh, really a shock to discover that, that our breast milk, which is this you know, brilliantly evolved food source that is really the only perfect food for humans, uh, is now kind of permanently contaminated. Wow. And again, another moment. We have to let this, let this sink in. Um. <laughs> I want to be clear, clear though, to say that um, I'm not opposed to breastfeeding. I think it's really important to say that even though there are these chemicals in human breast milk now in the Western world, um, that the benefits still seem to really outweigh the risk. And of course, there are chemicals in formula 
as well. And there are many, um, many risks associated with formula feeding. Um, there are compounds found in breast milk that cannot be replicated in a formula. For example, there are these really long-chain sugars um, that seem to be linked to our immune system and helping to develop our, our immune system, um, helping to really prime the way our guts develop and our gut microbes develop, uh, as well as these really important fatty acids for human infant development that, that just haven't really um, been simulated yet in a lab. Thank you. Yes, and it is the perfect food, right? It's got the right, right which protein. Is it's just such a shame, you know, that we've messed it up. <laughs> so I, I'd like to, I'd like to advocate for you know cleaning some of these industrial compounds out of our marketplace. And and, and why? Them. Yes, and and you know, there are two things that that strike me. First, of course, the sexualizing of of the female anatomy and, and that that cultural piece, and then. Since breasts are made of fat, and then we stigmatize that. And so it's really everything that keeps the species and helps the species evolve and, and continue are things that we are discriminating against or, or somehow creating as bad. And, and as women, this is, who, this is what we are. This is who we are, and this is how we keep the species going. So uh, I, I have to say that the, on, on that cultural level that um, – as I read your work uh, and, and see what's happening uh, environmentally, it's, it's very disturbing. Let's put it yes. that way. Yes, I agree. And I, I'd especially just like to see more science. You know, we don't really know what all the, all the possible health effects are of these chemicals. So we, we need to, I think, be more committed to putting resources into the science, um, into testing these chemicals. And unfortunately, I think now we're you know, we have an administration where, if anything, you know, chemicals testing is likely to suffer for a while. I know. Um, for those who just joined us, by the way, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and you're listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. Our guest today is Florence Williams, author of the book Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. She also has a new podcast, Breasts Unbound. A lot of the science that you did find um, I'm, were sometimes found inadvertently. Um, I think it was a woman, Sue Fendon, I believe, who was talk- talking about chemical exposure early in the womb and the type and the way something um, gets into uh, a fetus it can actually impact whether one gets breast cancer from prenatal situation. And, and that was, I believe, you know, not something she was actually out there looking for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's interesting to me how that came about. Um, this woman, um, uh, she, she works at the University of Washington, and she was looking at um, miscarriage rates. Um, and she had a control group of mice, and she had a group of mice that she was exposing to some chemicals. And she noticed that, that all the mice uh, were miscarrying early and having some mammary gland development issues. Uh, and it turns out that even her, her control mice, uh, who she thought were so sort of clean, uh, clean diet, were actually exposed to the chemicals leaching out of their cage, cage, cages. And that chemical was BPA, bisphenol A, um, which has been in the news quite a bit in recent years. A number of states, including Maine, yes. uh, you know, at one point um, really... Uh, I think, legislated against BPA being in, for example, baby products uh, and things like, um, um, you know, baby bottles. So BPA, we know, is an estrogenic compound. Uh, it was actually created as an, as an estrogen uh, to give to women while they were pregnant. 
Uh, it didn't really work for that. It was supposed to prevent miscarriage. It didn't work for that. And so um, we, know, we know quite a bit about BPA now because this woman sort of accidentally you know, found that her mice were, were getting damaged from this early exposure. Um, and, it, and it also led to these discoveries that there are windows of vulnerability for exposure to chemicals. And one of those windows of vulnerability is in the womb, sort of while the fetus is gestating. So if a mom is exposed to BPA or other chemicals at that time, it's her pup uh, or her infant, if it's a human, uh, you know, who may be more at risk for these problems later on. It's that, that infant mammary gland that gets altered very, very early on in a way that will, will change it um, down further in the lifespan. So we are talking about something that can happen literally in the womb, and we're talking about chemical exposure after after birth and what we're all um, dealing with. So I would say that that would be an inflammatory, in, that there's inflammation, um, that there's somehow we are exacerbating a natural immune system response. So do we then, we need to do things to reduce our level of inflammation. Will that help? Eating vegetables, we say, or not drinking alcohol, or somehow wine is considered an uh, inflammatory process and increases breast cancer. You know, what, what, what have you found, or have you, in terms of what can we do to change some of, the, of that, even though it's happening? And that's out of our control at the moment. I think, Rhonda, that, that there's some uncertainty about exactly sort of what the mechanisms are. Um, for why early exposure can, can trigger some of these negative changes in the gland. Um, I think the, the role of inflammation is unclear. But, but one thing we can tell, especially pregnant women, is, is this is the time when you should re- be really careful about your intake of pesticides, about your exposure to plastics. Um, this is a good time maybe not to be drinking out of your plastic water bottle, um, for example, um, not to be microwaving plastic. Um, because that, that volatilizes uh, the compounds in plastic. Um, maybe not to be using a lot of personal care products, um, shampoos and face creams that are very heavily scented and fragranced because we know that those fragrances in personal care products are often bound with chemicals called phthalates, um, and those are also hormonally active chemicals. So it's a good time to sort of spend a little more money maybe on... Um, on uh, pesticide-free food, on personal care products that, that have natural ingredients. Um, and, and I think, you know, as, as we get older and, you know, later in life, then I think maybe some of, those, some of those effects don't matter as much. But it looks like, especially for these windows of vulnerability, um, it's time to be careful. Right. So, yes, we can, I think we can get that message out even, even more it's not necessarily yeah. things that we hear about all the time when, when women are, uh, although eating well is certainly in, in prenatal care across the board. Yeah. But I also want to say I feel, I feel really conflicted about telling women, you know, this is something you need to stress out about because, you know, pregnant women, <laughs> all women, we, we were under a lot of other stresses as it is. And, and so this is yet another reason why I feel like, we shouldn't have to protect ourselves. We should have our government be doing this for us, right? There yes. shouldn't be chemicals in the marketplace that are going to harm our fetuses. This is not something we should have to sort of manage, micromanage on a like hourly basis. Um, I think it's, that's why it's really important to you know elect leaders who care about these issues, uh, who care about chemical safety. Um, it's why um, it's why it's great to have consumer advocacy groups 
that are out there, you know, banning um, or boycotting, you know, certain products that, that may have these chemicals in them. If we let the marketplace speak and we let the government speak, we can have really more systemic changes that will protect everybody. There's um, a, a part of the book where you do talk, you do talk about um, that, that there is, well, that a lot of the hormones also have very good protective aspects, that estrogen is actually can be an, an, a cancer prevention aspect to it. And somehow that gets warped or twisted as, as the chemicals change or as the kinds of estrogen that we're exposed to changes. Can you, did, did I get that right? Or? Well, estrogen is definitely um, a tumor growth agent. So uh, too much estrogen is, is really, does not appear to be a good thing in terms of breast cancer risk and I think other cancers as well. It, it is protective, um, you know, against things like brain damage um, and dementia and bone damage. So uh, there are a lot of great things about estrogen, um, but, but we don't want, you know, undue exposures. We don't want exposures too early in adolescence, um, and, and we don't want the wrong kinds of estrogens landing on our receptors, <laughs> you know, and then right. triggering these changes down the line. So I, I think we still have a lot more research to do about the role of, of hormones and chemicals, I'm sorry, and hormones and uh, cancer. Right. And there was another piece, because I want to get back to the, breast, the breastfeeding aspect of, um, of what our breasts do and how that's a wonderful, <laughs> how, how that really sets a, an infant, a child up for really good immune um, uh, health as, as the, the child's life continues. Um, that there was also this aspect of bacteria. And we don't often think of bacteria as something, uh, although we might think about it if people do probiotics, uh, those acidophilus, bifida, and then we'll get to, to that, right? Um, but what is, how does bacteria play into breast milk and, and immune transmission, a healthy immune transmission? This is one of the really fun kind of positive aspects of breast. <laughs> yeah, no, that's why I thought that, I'd bring it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we're happy talking about this. And in fact, I mean, that's really what inspired me partly to write this book and to do the podcast. Um, I mean, my own experiences breastfeeding were so joyful and powerful. Um, you know, I loved feeling like I was part of that long mammalian tradition throughout history. Um, it, it really is a miracle that, that our, our breasts can take food and can take, you know, food molecules and um, then take blood and convert these into milk. You know, it's this all-chemical, all you know, amazing process. Um, and I think people used to think that breast milk was kind of like a urine, that it was sterile, uh, that it was really just a food. But as we learned from evolution, uh, lactation really evolved initially 300 million years ago, not as a food, but actually as um, uh, an, an anti-infective agent. So it evolved to help the immune system, uh, and and the young who were sort of exposed to these glands and the substances in these glands had better immune protection. And now we know, in fact, that that breast milk is filled with some of these um, immune supporting properties. Um, lactoferrin, for example, is a compound that um, can can cure eye infections. You know, if it's squirted into a baby who has an eye infection. It looks like some of these compounds can really inhibit the transmission of um, viruses like AIDS, like HIV. And so um, we're learning more about those anti-infective properties. But at the same time, 
we're learning that there are all these live bacteria in breast milk and live sugars that also um, introduce more bacteria into the infant gut. So I mentioned these long-chain fatty sugars. Um, these are oligosaccharides, um, and, and they are very, very common by weight. Like something like, you know, 50% of breast milk is filled with these oligosaccharides. Um, and yet, the infants, our infants don't even eat them. They don't digest them. And so there are researchers like Dr. Bruce German uh, at the University of California, Davis, who I went out to interview for the podcast and for the book, who started asking, well, what are those oligosaccharides doing there in such large quantities, you know, if the infants aren't even digesting them? And it turns out those oligosaccharides are digested by beneficial bacteria. So the oligosaccharides line the infant gut, bacteria comes in, uh, eats the oligosaccharides, and then that bacteria helps protect that infant from from worse bacteria, sort of crowds it out. And uh, that's one of the reasons why infants who are breastfed uh, appear to have kind of a healthier community of microflora as they they develop into kids and adults, and also why um, they may have lower risk of things like ear infections as they grow. Because they have that immunity. And, and you know, in Chinese medicine, I, I also am an acupuncturist and herbalist, and we know that the gut, there's a whole school of, of treatment that's all about keeping your gut healthy. Huh. Yeah. And is that mostly herbal, or how do you do that? Uh, yes, uh, herbal. There are particular herbs. There would be um, also through acupuncture how we would, it's called the spleen stomach school because that's all about digestion of, of, of Chinese medicine. And so you would, yes, there are things that would help create gut health um, using Chinese herbs, using food. Nutrition is considered the, the first line of treatment. So in, those, in, in the ancient texts, they, they were fermenting everything because you didn't have refrigerators. <laughs> so, right, right, and in Japanese culture... And I do know that we, in the book we say that Japanese, that there's uh, less um, breast cancer, if I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, that's in, right. There's much less breast cancer in, in Japanese women. Right. And um, so it's, it's an interesting correlation to, to hear us talk about breast milk and creating a microcosm of really good gut bacteria that's keeping us healthy. And you yeah, might say. That's right. We're just really starting to understand that tremendous health implications of having a healthy community of gut, of uh, bacteria in our gut. It's, it's a, I think, a really, you know, burgeoning area of science, and it may lie at the root of so much, uh, you know, in, in our human health. And, and I do wonder, of course, I don't think we can answer this today, but would being able to really create good flora and fauna, not only in the gut, but in other areas of our, of our system, would that possibly be a way for us to, ad- to overcome this man-made environmental chemical soup that we have created for ourselves? Is there a way that the human species can evolve? We, you know, that's, and, 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 you know, and of course, where this, and and I think it really just comes right back to the idea of a healthy breasts and healthy breastfeeding and and creating that con, uh, communication between infants and 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 mom. That's right, and I think if we're going to promote a healthy, sane um, response to to breastfeeding, if we if we want to support women breastfeeding. That's 
one of the reasons why I think we need to kind of take back <laughs> our attitudes about breasts and not just over-sexualize them and, and, you know, believe this kind of nonsense that they're really for men, you know. I, I think because we have those beliefs, it's one of the reasons why, why we do have a deep level of discomfort still with breast, breastfeeding in this country. Um, there's a lot of discomfort with public breastfeeding. You know, our workplace places often don't um, support women with breastfeeding spaces. Um, we certainly have terrible maternal um, maternity leave policies, you know, maybe five weeks of leave if we're lucky. Whereas in other countries in the world, like in parts of Western Europe, they get 12 months of paid maternity leave. So, of course, that is really going to support breastfeeding. There was an, uh, a whole part of the book where you talked about preemies, too, and and this whole idea of st- of the sterile environment versus this what we're discussing, the, the good bacteria, the good nurturing, and how back that how breast milk and some of these uh, co- compounds are being used to actually help sick babies. That's right. Very early preemies are at tremendous risk of life-threatening infections, especially one called, um, uh, let's see, what is it called, NEC. Necrosis, yes. Enterocolitis, Yeah. Uh, and this is a bacteria that can that can be fatal in preemies. And so there's some really interesting tests underway uh, that are looking at um, giving these preemies breast milk instead of formula, um, or at least supplementing their formula with breast milk, uh, and then also giving them um, kind of a special hit of, of certain bacteria like bifidus, uh, which is a very beneficial bacteria that's, that's often found in breast milk. Um, giving them that, and then, or I guess breast milk often kind of, um, you know, helps attract that bifida bacteria. And then, in fact, they are seeing much higher survival rates in these preemies who are given breast milk. Quite exciting. If you have just joined us, this is Healthy Options, and on WERU Community Radio, I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're talking with Florence Williams, author of Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. I want to go back a little a moment when we're talking about the cultural support of breast uh, breast uh, cancer. I mean, uh, of, of breastfeeding. Listen to me. Um, I'm I'm remembering a, a young woman uh, uh, who's in her 30s who gave birth and had to go back to work after a much shorter time than needed, and she wrote this really beautiful blog about it and basically was talking about how how horrified she is that she has to pump her breast milk secretly in the bathroom during breaks and and how angry she is about it so yes exactly i think a lot of women feel really marginalized you know we have to be taken out of sight <laughs> often put in these really unpleasant dirty spaces yeah. uh to breastfeed and, uh, yeah, like, when are, as a society, when are we just going to be more comfortable with the fact that this is a basic human function? <laughs> and, in fact, it's, it, it, uh, you know, it's part of, of, of being human, and it's, it's something our infants really, really need. And with that said, I just talked about a woman in her 30s giving birth. What do we know about, in our culture, you know, delayed pregnancies or, or early onset menstruation, as we talked about uh, that happening more with chemical exposure, we think, maybe, uh, or how that's changing. What does that say for the health for breast cancer and for uh, the possibility of more illnesses for women? Well, we know that as, as women uh, are having babies later and later in life, 
um, that, that fact alone is also increasing their risk factor for breast cancer. There's something about the actual act of pregnancy, being pregnant, and then of breastfeeding that's very protective for the breast. Uh, and in fact, if you breastfeed for you know, uh, you know, eight or 12 months uh, over a couple of pregnancies, you're reducing your breast cancer risk. But it's most protective if, in fact, you have breast cancer, if you have, if you have um, pregnancies earlier in life. So if you're 18 or 20 or 25 or 30, uh, that can really help protect your breast. If you're over 35 when you have your kids, um, and I was over 35 when I had one of them, um, and I was just under 35 when I had another, it's unfortunately not as helpful. <laughs> and, and, in fact, we are, those, those women who have kids later in life are just at higher risk for breast cancer, unfortunately. Well, my mother was 42, so... But I wasn't wow. her first. I wasn't <laughs> her first, you know, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. And I, I actually have spoken to a number of people in that situation. My mother did die of breast cancer. So mm, sorry. I know. I know. And I think we all have that history of some. We all know someone. Some. We all know someone. And that's just just too common. And, uh, and also, um, I think there was an increase of, of men having uh, breast cancer as well. Just not to, uh, and and how to deal with that aspect um, in that culture, and well, some cultures. I believe you were talking about the Marines, and and how that the, some of that's the study of men having breast cancer will actually help with uh, more ideas about how to treat women with breast cancer as well. That's right. I have a chapter in the book about male breast cancer, uh, and there's a cluster that I really focus on, both for the book and the podcast. I went back down there and interviewed some former Marines um, and people who grew up on this base, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. It turns out that Camp Lejeune had the most contaminated groundwater in a public drinking water supply really ever found in the United States. So a number of uh, industrial chemicals uh, in there that um, appear to be linked to a number of cancers, um, breast cancer being one of them. And, and, you know, women get breast cancer so often that we hardly even notice when, when women show up with breast cancer. But because breast cancer in men is still such a rare disease, they get it at about 1% of the rate, typically, that women do. When you have 80 men showing up with breast cancer who used to live at Camp Lejeune, all of a sudden, the alarm bells start going off. People really notice it. Um, so, so we have those men to be thankful for, really, for, for sort of, um, you know, coming forward, being public with their breast cancer diagnosis. Not always easy for men to do, especially men uh, in military families or Marines, um, they got together. They, they wanted to find out. They, wa- they wanted to make a statement that, hey, we exist. We drank this water. Let's find out you know, if the reason we have breast cancer is because of these chemicals. And then maybe the VA can help pay for some of our expensive treatment. Um, and so, so some of those studies uh, have recently been conducted. And it turns out that, that yes, um, it does look like um, these chemicals may have played a role uh, in, in some of these cancers being more common than they otherwise would have. And now um, the National Institutes of Environmental Health Science researchers there are also looking specifically at these chemicals uh, in rats. They're doing some tests on them. Um, so hopefully we'll have some more answers soon, and, and hopefully this will also help promote just more testing. Well, of course, we have to look at the irony of this just, just a little bit. Do we not? Just just for a moment that, <laughs> that uh, you know, there had to be, and I'm sure, uh, I don't know if you, we have the numbers of all the women who also drank that water. 
That's right. You know, and that's right. we pay we pay a lot of attention when it's a, a male disease all of a sudden. That's but but as I said, it's it it, it does um, it does just become a more pronounced kind of phenomenon. You can draw a straighter line to sure. a chemical exposure and a cancer in men uh, than you can in women, <clears throat> because we know that there are so many other complicating lifestyle risk factors for women, such right. as you know age of menstruation number of children, years breastfed, hormone replacement therapy. You know, there's so many complicating risk factors for women. Whereas with men, it's like, what? Why are they getting this disease? You know, and then it becomes right. kind of easier to see a possible link. Yes. So I'm grateful to the men for coming forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, that, that this hopefully will create some uh, new awareness and new research, which is really what we're talking about, isn't it? Yes, exactly. That's really what we need. So let's talk about a little bit about hormone replacement therapy. You did mention that, and uh, th- what, what do we know about that? Did that wasn't is this a little bit of a created uh, phenomenon back in back in the day? What is this in the '60s and such? <laughs> yes, good question. Uh, so menopause <laughs> yes. is something every woman on the planet will go through, uh, and yet we've managed to somehow pathologize it. Um, make women feel like they have something wrong with them <laughs> if they ha- are going through menopause. And, and, and uh, doctors have said, um, and, and, and pharmaceutical companies, hey, we have created a pill that you can take to, to fix menopause, <laughs> to, fix, to fix your symptoms associated with it. Um, and so, so these pills were marketed so heavily. Women took a lot of uh, hormone replacement therapy, a lot of estrogen, a lot of high-dose progesterone, um, I know my mother was on it. I know, you know, lots of women in the 70s and 80s were on them. And, um, uh, you know, it, it wasn't really the miracle cure that I think people were hoping for. Oh, and my fact, mother, too. Yes, all of us. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And studies later showed that, that women did have a higher risk of breast cancer um, after being on hormone replacement therapy. So, um, but it's complicated, <laughs> and it depends on what kinds of hormones. It depends on the dose. It depends on the age at which you take you took them. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about sort of exactly what that risk is. Certainly, some women do have serious symptoms from menopause and may find great relief uh, in hormone replacement therapy. But I think you know that that your doctors really have to look at the whole picture. Look at the breast cancer risk in your family. Look at your family history of it. Um, you know, talk about dose, talk about age at which you're taking it. I, I think it's it's just a, a decision that every woman has to make for herself, and I don't want to be judgmental about it, but I think that we should all be just open-eyed about what some of the possible risks are going to be. So we do know that the, uh, I think there's what, at least a fifth less of the, um, no, more than that, the dosage is like one-fifth of what it used to be in, in when things first came out in terms of how much estrogen and progesterone and whatever is, is in those, the hormone replacement therapy. So it is very different than our mother's HRT, but. It, it, is, it, is, it is a little bit different, but I, I know with birth control pills too, you know, we thought, oh, if we just take the lower dose birth control pills, we'll be at much lower risk uh, for some of the side effects. And, and it turns out that, that actually that, that may not be entirely the case, that even these low-dose birth control pills are, are causing some, some problems in some women later on. Absolutely. So the dose question may, may not be quite the sort of um, hopeful piece of it that we were hoping. So I know that, uh, that the whole idea of uh, opposed, estro- opposed estrogen with progesterone was uh, touted as a, uh, a big breakthrough, and now we know that progesterone is actually uh, more cancer-causing than we thought. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
Hormones are super complicated. <laughs> right. And, uh, as much as it's appealing to just be on estrogen forever, um, yeah, we really have to have to look at the risks. Well, and also we have to un- embrace aging somehow That's as right. a culture. Do we not? Yes. We do. Yes. We do. It's just, yes. <laughs> Hard <Okay>. to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would be nice if we did that. <laughs> right. Really. Right. So, you know, just, just keep exercising, keep eating your smoothies, okay? <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. We are... Um, we're really running the gamut here of of really excellent uh, research that you did on on the idea of what how do or how does breast breast health not only affect us as individual women but it, it affect us as uh, as a culture and as a um, as a society, and, and not just in America, we're, we really are talking globally. So, what you know, in in other parts of the world, they have there has been a uh, a, a ban on certain chemicals and and that kind of thing. What are you noticing? Well, we talked a little bit about having some more research and such happening here in the United States, but is there is there hope for us here in the United States? I know some chemicals have been already um, banned, but not, not so much right now. Yeah, I think, I think in the United States, we, our government has actually only banned about five chemicals, which is shocking if you think about it. Um, it it's so hard to get a chemical off the marketplace, uh, which is crazy because there actually are much safer alternatives to many of these chemicals. And sometimes those alternatives, for example, you know, BPA, I mean, we use it to line tin cans and... Um, uh, uh, canned sodas, among other things, um, there are safer replacements for those for that chemical, but 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 it adds a few cents right to the price of the product, uh, and so we need to have consumer demand. We need to have advocacy. Uh, we need to have, I think, politicians really looking out for our health, um, because right now Congress and the and the, the agencies, EPA, are you know they just have a very very hard time actually removing these chemicals altogether. Whereas that's not necessarily the case in Europe. I feel like if you're going to be pregnant and nursing a child, it's actually much safer for your infant and, and potentially for yourself to, to do it in Europe. Um, and that in itself is frustrating. You know, we are an advanced country. We have very high health care costs. It would be great to prevent cancer. Um, and yet, uh, why are we so far behind our European peers on this point? Frustrating. Well- Yes, and you also talked about a screening and ways and mammography and uh, other kinds of techniques. You went down to have a really interesting ultrasound exam, maybe, and that's used in Sweden, just talking about, uh, apparently. Maybe you could explain a little bit about, about that as well. That was just a 3D mammogram. Oh, um, okay. And, uh, but it was new technology, you know, at the time that I was writing the book. Okay. And uh, I was curious to see, you know, how, how effective those are and, and what, what that experience is like. Um, unfortunately, you know, any mammography that we do involves a pretty high amount of radiation. Right. Uh, or not even a high amount, but, but it, it accumulates, you know, over our lifetime. And if we get mammograms every year or every other year, um, you know, we know <laughs> that radiation causes cancer. So it's ironic that we're using something radioactive, uh, you know, to test. For cancer, and I, I just am frustrated that you know, in the 50 years since mammography has been invented, that we haven't come up with a better way to screen women. You know, why are we still using this 50-year-old 
carcinogenic technology. Um, I just feel like there hasn't quite been enough um, uh, momentum and impetus and motivation um, in, in R&D, you know, to come up with something safer. And, and maybe it's because it's associated with a woman's cancer. Uh, I think, I think it's, it's, it's certainly frustrating. Very frustrating. As we'll take a moment of silence on radio to <laughs> let that sink in. One of the things that we're, we, you were talking about as well is, is how um, many younger women are being diagnosed with uh, breast cancer these days. And somehow there's a pregnancy breast cancer connection that is worrisome. What do we re- know about that? Um, well, we know that, uh, yeah, in some women it looks like pregnancy can kind of um, trigger breast cancer. It's very, very unusual. Unusual. Uh, yes. It's unusual. I think it tends to be in older women. But, you know, when you're pregnant, there's a huge flood of estrogen uh, that, that's part of that. And, um, you know, for some women, they can have what's called pregnancy-related breast cancer. Um, again, it's something I think we need a lot more research in, um, how to sort of minimize some of those risks. Um, but, but in general, pregnancy, especially with lactation, can be very, very protective against breast cancer. There's another reason to really support women breastfeeding. Right. Mm-hmm. That that yes, that that that's those are the the protective factors in that we have in our own bodies. Yes, exactly. Our bodies were designed to breastfeed, and I, I know there are women for various reasons can't do it. Um, and and I you know I understand and and I. Um, you know, I don't want to be judgmental of their reasons for not doing it. I think there are a lot of good reasons not to breastfeed. Some women have trouble lactating. But our bodies did evolve to make this work for ourselves. Um, there's something about the act of breastfeeding um, that, that seems to protect the breast. As I mentioned, it also protects the infant. Uh, it seems to um, also help women's bodies uh, just recover from all the weight gain, for example, of pregnancy. It helps us sort of process through some of that extra fat um, and, and kind of cleanse our bodies in some ways, um, you know, in a very healthful way. So, so if it's possible for women to breastfeed, if we can support them doing it, um, you know, by all means, uh, that's a great thing to do. Absolutely. There's a whole chapter in your book about dense breasts. What do we know about, what does that mean? I've, I think many of us have heard that when we've gone to, uh, to have a mammogram, that, as imperfect as they are. <laughs> Um, what, is that, what does that mean? Should we be concerned about that kind of thing? Yeah, so breast density is not something that women are typically um, kind of um, told about in terms of its meaning, but about one in four women uh, has dense breasts. I am one of those one in four. Uh, and it turns out that that is a significant risk factor for breast cancer. Um, something about breast density means you have more gland and less fat, uh, you know, as a ratio um, some women uh, maintain this kind of a post, post-pregnancy, post-lactation uh, into their later years. There are certain chemicals we know that also promote breast dance, that density, um, red wine, uh, hormone replacement therapy, uh, birth control pills. These can make our breasts more dense. Uh, and this is a risk factor for breast cancer. Hmm. What do we do? Is there something to do? Uh, well, uh, so, yes, I, you know, one, one thing to do is actually to drink less alcohol. So alcohol does appear to be a risk factor for breast cancer. It may be because of this density. 
issue. It may be through other factors. Um, but but uh, if you can reduce your consumption of alcohol, that does seem to be uh, helpful as far as as, as risk. Uh, again, hormone replacement therapy, you know, think about that one carefully in discussion with your doctor. Um, let's see, what else? I, you know, there, there are, as you mentioned, exercise, diet, but even all of these preventative factors, they just don't add up to a really huge change in risk, which is why we also need to be looking at the environment and we also need to be looking at uh, the chemicals we're exposed to. So it's not, it's not just up to individual women, you know, to change their lifestyles in healthy ways. It's, it's really up to the, kind of the structures of our society, uh, you know, to be healthier for everybody. So, you know, getting back to way at the, yes, at the way at the beginning of your book and way at the beginning of our, our program, we talked about um, sexualizing, you know, the breasts as, and just seeing them as somehow a, a sexual part of our anatomy. Um, and you were talked about a lot of women, uh, you know, at the idea of the, the breast enhancement and the silicon enhancements and, and how that, that's changed, that ha- it's changed and it hasn't changed. Um, you know, but uh, I, I was happy in your podcast that you did talk about um, uh, some women who post uh, surgery or after uh, mastectomies have made a decision not to do some of that. And and just let's talk about those kinds of options and and what you know the people you spoke with who had made the ch- ch- the idea to do that kind of uh, enhancement. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, there's so much pressure these days on women to look a certain way, um, to look younger. Big breasts are very popular right now still in pornography, um, in Hollywood. And, and these trends really come and go. I mean, there are different times, you know, in the 19th century, for example, like with the age of the flapper, you know, where small breasts uh, were considered very sexy. Um, and during the sort of twiggy era, you know, of the 1960s, small breasts were in. But um, I think now with, like, porn being so pervasive, um, unfortunately, breast augmentation surgery, women wanting implants, uh, it's more popular than ever. And so I was really interested to meet some women who are sort of pushed back against that even after breast cancer surgery. So even after their mastectomies, rather than just sort of buy into this, you know, mythology that in order to be attractive, in order to be womanly, they have to have big breasts. They have to replace, you know, their, their breasts after mastectomies, um, some of them are saying, you know, there are a lot of risks associated with that surgery, and um, who needs it? You know, I don't, I don't want that stuff leaking into my bloodstream, the silicon. I don't want it turning hard, you know, and encapsulating and having to buy into a lifetime of replacing the silicone implants every five to ten years. Um, you know, there are a number of risks associated with that surgery that, that cosmetic surgeons don't necessarily tell you about right off the bat. Uh, and so, um, I, yeah, I think it, it's very cool that there are these women pioneers. I interviewed one in Boston. Uh, she's, she's actually writing a book called Going Flat about <laughs> her choice not to, um, not to augment her breast after breast cancer surgery. Uh, and more power to her. I'm, I'm, I'm really moved by women who kind of are going with their own gut, doing what they want to do, and not just conforming to sort of what society expects us to look like. Absolutely. So what we're telling women is uh, is is to to really and once again embrace our 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 knowing to really trust ourselves, about breastfeeding our children or or just making those kinds of 
choices based on, on what's best for you, not some external idea. Exactly. And sometimes it's helpful to us to have role models, you know, who did it first. Absolutely. And then we can support each other in some of these really difficult choices. I want to just, and we only have a, a, a couple of minutes left, but I just did want to talk about, um, in terms of breastfeeding, the idea that we are kind of, kind of, and it's like an ancestral, um, it's an, it's ancestral. It's like the bacteria and such that we are passing on has, it, it sort of has come from generations and our ancestors. When, and, and somehow, do you think we have to kind of start that again? Because there are so many of us who are not breastfed as children and maybe didn't get all of those benefits. Do we get to uh, start once again the chain of, uh, of all those good bacteria and all that good immunology? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was really our mother's generation, um, women in the 60s and 70s, uh, who stopped breastfeeding. Right. <laughs> right? It was, breastfeeding was really uncommon in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and now, you know, we're starting to sort of take it back, and it's becoming more popular. Um, the, the chain was broken in terms of passing bacteria from one generation to another. Um, I know I, I was only breastfed, I think, for about three weeks or four weeks. Um, and I, you know, now knowing all that I know, <laughs> I really wish my mom had, had been able to do it longer. I so, know. yeah, I think we can, we, you know, we can try to kind of um, rebuild that ancestral chain and, and be mammals again. Yay, let's be mammals again. Yay, mammals. <laughs> okay. Wow. Well, we are, we are just coming to the end. I think that's a good, a good place to... <laughs> Yay, mammal, mammals. Yay, mammals. But you do say at the end of your podcast, and I'm going to quote you, that um, that we that the breast, the life-giving, species-defining orbs of mystery and change. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yes, that is what Love we're your breasts. They are miracles. There That's you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> Our guest on Health... This is great. Our guest on Healthy Options today has been Florence Williams, author of the book Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, and producer of the podcast Breasts Unbound. Thank you, Florence, for being here today and sharing your research and your keen insights on this important topic. Her website is florencewilliams.com, and Breasts Unbound is available as an Apple podcast. We will have links to these when we post the show on the public affairs section of weru.org. In the meantime, if you've missed any part of this Healthy Options program, would like to share it and would like to share it, please go to weru.org to find our recent programs on demand. And Florence Williams spoke with us back in the fall about her book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. And you can find that Healthy Options interview on the Public Affairs Archives at WERU as well. I want to thank Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, thanks to all our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.